Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to episode eight of Kicking the Karaoke. With me, Elena. And me, Sid. We're an intersectional feminist podcast. And our feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Last month, we talked consent with three out of this world guests, Nadia, Duncan and Suswana. We talked about how unjust the justice system is and how it actually does more damage than good. How masculinity intersects with the identity of being a male victim. And what universities are doing to educate students on consent with I Heart Consent workshops. It's definitely worth a listen if you missed it. Also, big shout out to Hannah Verdier, the kick-ass journalist who wrote an article about us in The Guardian and called us podcasters who don't play it safe. So after tackling the taboo of rape and sexual assault, it's time we looked at another silent taboo. Mental health. When one in four people in the UK will experience a mental health issue this year. And when the average waiting time for mental health treatment on the NHS is 18 weeks. It's high time we started talking about it. What is it about society's ideals of masculinity that's causing 76% of suicide to be men under the age of 45? And why are women's rates of attempted suicide and self-harm so much higher than men's? To be fair though, we've come a long way since homosexuality was considered a mental health problem, right? So, why do one in five healthcare staff in London think someone's sexual orientation can be cured? And why does the World Health Organization still list being trans as a mental health issue? What's it like to be sectioned voluntarily in the UK today? Or involuntarily? We have three great guests on our show today to address some of these questions. This is a huge topic, and in no way does this episode cover all aspects of mental health. In fact, we'd love to do another episode on this in the future to add more voices to the conversation. So get in touch. But for now, we're kicking the karaoke, and here's our first guest. Hi, my name's Chama Kay. I am a black man, cishet. I am a poet, sometimes, mental health activist, all the time. Yeah, that's me. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your experiences with mental health? Yeah, sure. So up until I was about 15, I was one of those people who didn't believe that mental health or mental illness was a thing. I thought it was just, you know, a weakness of the mind that people have. Around 16, that's when everything sort of changed for me. So I started experiencing feelings that I'd never felt before. I was a very confident child academically. I knew my strengths and weaknesses. That's the first time I probably started to doubt myself academically. And I had no reason to. Like My grades didn't start to fall. And then I started to have what I guess you'd call an existential crisis. But it was just feelings that I now understand as being depression. So around 17, I started to self-harm because that was the only way I knew how to express what was going on. There was a time in sixth form where everybody would ask me, like, what's wrong? And I kept saying, I don't know. I don't know all the time. 
And one day I just like got a needle and just carved, I don't know, into my arm. And that just started an on-off pattern that continued until about two years ago. So yeah, about two years self-harm free, which is cool. I didn't really seek help because I didn't know I needed to seek help until I was about 19. I went to the uni counsellors and it was an interesting experience because looking back, I learned that if you don't know the type of help that you need when it comes to mental health and mental illness, it's very difficult to get adequate help. So I went through, at my time at uni, I went through three different counsellors. The first two, yeah, I didn't really feel it was like helpful. To be honest, it was more like some kind of agony aunt situation and it was two women. So the second one I requested to see a man because I felt like there would be a lot more, I guess, it's the type of empathy you have when you identify with somebody it's the kind of empathy that you know, as a black person there's like people call it different things but like black telepathy if you're a black person you see another black person in a space that black people aren't supposed to be or whatever there's like the black head nod like you don't know the person but you just nod their heads like black people listening will understand what i'm talking about and i'm sure like different communities particularly marginalized communities will understand that immediately obviously men are not a marginalized community but i felt that there would be a level of empathy where i don't need to explain certain things as useful as those six weeks were with the male cancer again it wasn't enough it wasn't the right type of treatment that i needed i didn't get officially diagnosed until i was about 20 or 21 so i was diagnosed with something called borderline personality disorder which at the time was just words to me a simple explanation is it's to do with irregulation of mood so a lot of people say it's like bipolar if you imagine bipolar is a state of being manic so like a few days where you're totally ecstatic and a few days where you're totally depressed rather than well, your episodes don't really last a day or two they could last hours so at my most difficult points i would go through every gambit of emotion in a day feeling loved by the people around me to feeling neglected and rejected by the people around me and this could literally just be one day i got put on medication to help with the mood stabilization so the idea was help me deal with the mood swings so that i can have therapy because as you can understand it's very difficult to give talking therapy to somebody who is capable of having that quick emotional turnaround they could walk into the room as one person and in the course of being that room be like four or five different people so this is the first time I turned myself over to the NHS is when I got diagnosed. And I, to be honest, was let down. So I'd never been on prescribed medication before. So not being told what the process of renewing your medication is. So when I first started my medication, my meds ran out and I called the health centre to say, so my meds are running out, like I don't know what you do. I said, oh, don't worry, you know, we're going to give you a call when they're ready. And the call never came and by the time it did come one of the side effects is if you just jump off the medication you go into like a depressive state which is exactly what happened to me another issue i had is obviously university in surrey but i live in east london slash essex so when i'd go back for the summers i couldn't essentially get any help unless i returned back to egham and also there were a few episodes where i knew that my ethnicity was an issue so people think this was me dealing specifically with white practitioners it wasn't actually one of the worst episodes i had was dealing with so i'm african was dealing with two african mental health outreach workers shall we say where a lot of the taboos i guess around mental illness came out in that conversation and it was very strange to me that they spoke to me not as like a patient that needed help but as somebody who shouldn't really 
have these issues because we're supposed to be strong in this society because this society isn't built for us anyway. The last two years I've been much better since I've moved back home and started to get more support from my family, my mum specifically. In a lot of ways I've come out the other side. I guess I'll always have to deal with it in one way or another but I'm comfortable and more confident in my mental health at the moment and my focus as well as maintaining my mental health is helping others who I guess can identify with my story to recognize firstly that they need help and how to navigate getting help and that I think is what drives me I guess it's easy to say ex-community needs more help men need to speak more black communities need to speak more because of the high suicide rates that young British men experience and the disproportionate rates of mental illness in the black communities in this country I think my experience has taught me that knowing that you have to talk or knowing that you have to deal with it is one thing but knowing how to is something totally different so that has been quite a journey over these past few years why do you think it is then that as you mentioned that men disproportionately are affected by mental health issues and suicide and within that black men why do you think that's the case I can only speak from my experience and experience of people I know. I think there's a couple of things. One, we live in a world where roles for men and women are changing. I do think a lot of men find it hard to have that sense of purpose that maybe our fathers or grandfathers immediately had with, you know, very set patriarchal roles in place. And that's a theory that I've heard quite a few times and it's very difficult to discuss because it sounds like once I say that it sounds like I'm saying well we need to go back to you know man being the head of the household and all that it's not what I'm saying but I think there is truth to that I also think that men are now expected to emote more but aren't taught from a young age how to emote so I'll give you an example I did a workshop a few months ago for a great organization called Consented UK on men and mental health when I started I asked the men in the room to say before you were 10 years old, had you heard said to you or around you the phrase boys don't cry or man up or be a man? And I would say comfortably 90% of the men in the room put their hands up. I can say by the time I was 10, I had heard my dad tell me I'd rather you punched me than I saw you cry. Once at school, your boy was told off for essentially he was being bullied at lunch and he came into class after like the lunch break and was crying and the teacher told him off so this is when i was in zambia in the zambian private schooling system if you are deemed to be performing so well academically in your year they'll push you up a year so that happened to me twice so i was in class with people two years older than me essentially and we came back to class came back to class and the teacher says to this boy who was like crying oh why are you crying fool your young friend pointing at me he's here and he's not crying about you know anything so messages of stoicism are placed into young boys from a very early age i can fast forward to my first relationship where an ex-girlfriend told me i wish you were more cold those kind of things shape you for black men and i would say this i can only speak from again my experience black men in western societies there's another level of essentially the discrimination that comes with the experience of being black things like knowing and not just knowing but living life as an increased target for police suspicion knowing that people are scared of you for reasons that you can't really impact at all. So again, for Consented UK, I did another workshop, which was about black people and mental health. I made the point to say that as a black man, I feel like I have a relationship with the police. And I would say a majority of black men would say that. 
majority of black people would say that they have a relationship with the police. Nobody should have a relationship with the police unless you are in a relationship with a police officer or a criminal. Things like employability, your chances of being employed as an African with an African name, often I would start a job application and think somebody could literally just look at the name and be like, not having that, not dealing with that at all. Things like how you're perceived in the workplace, speaking to black men, young black men like myself, conversations and thoughts you have about how you present yourself to be not aggressive. That obviously stunts emotional expression because there's a time when people do get frustrated. You get frustrated at work. And we are, as black men, are hyper aware of the fact that in some environments, if we express a level of justifiable anger, it would be viewed as an act of aggression, whereas other people can express that and they'll understand the situation and not view the person as an aggressive person. And I'll I'll give a great example. A, a, A young black man who I know told me that a senior manager once said to him that he shouldn't show anger in the workplace. And in the kind of profession he's in, let's just say that he would most likely work around a lot of white men who play rugby. So if you think about it logically, this guy, he's like small in stature, this young black man. He would be viewed apparently as an aggressor if he showed anger at the workplace. But this is a workplace that has people who, for fun, will go out on the weekend and run into each other and hurt each other. So how is someone who literally indulges in a violent sport for fun not viewed as an aggressive person, but a black person who gets pissed off at work is? It's a drain. It's an emotional drain. It's a mental drain because constantly thinking about how you present yourself essentially to a white world as a black person is strenuous. There are obviously a myriad of reasons and different black men will have different experiences. What's it like to navigate in a world where you're trying to understand your own emotions and why your own emotions are perhaps fluctuating so much more and being judged for it yet feeling like maybe you can't talk about it? Because that's a stereotype of masculinity, isn't it? Men don't talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it is one of the most sort of confusing experiences of my life, I guess. There were so many levels for me personally. There was a level of I always did more and more understand that I needed to talk. But I also knew that I didn't really have the the, the skills to do it. I didn't really understand how to talk. For me, one of the personal difficulties that I had was, on one hand, I had people I loved dearly telling me that I needed to express myself. But on the other hand, I had these deep family values that I felt I was letting down who I'm supposed to be. So it it was very difficult to navigate. One thing I guess I had never really gone through or experienced, I don't think I've ever really had this crisis of how do I behave in a white world? So that's not something that I had to deal with. What I had to deal with was, and this is why I mentioned the point specifically when you mentioned black men, black men in the West, was the point of letting my heritage down if I do what's right for my health. And if you talk about black people in Britain specifically, I guess to some extent to like black people all throughout Europe because of history and, you know, horrible things that happen in history, we know where we originate from. There's in a lot of African, I guess to some extent to African-Caribbean, but I'm African, so I'll speak from a lot of African households, there's almost this idea, spoken or unspoken, that when you're in the house, you are in the country that you're from. And when you leave the house, you're in Britain. And that can be from things like the smell in your house, the fact that people speak a different language in your house, to literally, I know some people who have grown up in homes where their parents say, in here you're in Nigeria, Ghana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, wherever it is, out there you're in Britain. So when you come here, those values that your friends have, they don't count in here. So for me, that was my battle. How do I balance being an emotional, stable British man, but still an emotionally strong African man? 
And I think that's a battle that a lot of people like me go through. How is your relationship with your family now then? Oh, it's much better now. And I think one of the things that changed is there's a lot of literature about living with people, with BPD. It's basically literature to support people who look after people who have BPD. And one of the most lauded ones is a book called Living With and Loving Someone with BPD, something along those lines. So I literally just told my mum, look, buy this book and read it. Since she read the book, there's been a marked change in how she deals with me. So that literally is the answer. And when I do my activism, particularly black people, and they ask me that question, that's one of the things I do recommend is finding some kind of literature or resources that are there to support people who uh, live with somebody because that's one of the the other things I I learned is that people who support someone who's going through a serious mental illness also need support. So you mentioned when you were seeking help at university that you asked for help and then you kind of got it and it wasn't that great and it almost sounds like the NHS were a little bit negligent in that they didn't really tell you the process of continuing with medication. What was that like? I would imagine that that's quite frustrating. Oh, that's not even the word, to be honest. I, I don't know what the word is to express the level of frustration, but frustration doesn't cut it, I'll tell you that much. It was really, really deflating because for me, it was a huge step. It was the first time I totally said to myself, look, I am literally gonna rely on somebody else to show me the way from a very 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 early age I have always been I've always wanted to be as independent as possible so for me to go from that to okay that's it you guys are going to help me now and everything you say I'll do what I'll do and then being let down it was massively deflating massively deflating and the second time it happened even worse you know on what reason do I have to keep making this effort Okay, so I'm not one who really likes to make comparisons between mental and physical illness because I don't really think they work. But I'm going to break that rule here. It's like, imagine you have a broken leg. That's what people love to go for. So you go in to get surgery. Fine, that's cool. And they sort of partially fix you until you come back later. And then you get partially fixed again and come back later. And every time you go back, more and more damage gets done to the point you think, well, might as well just live life with a broken leg. But at the same time, having everybody else tell you, why are you hobbling around when you can just go and get this fixed by somebody else? There was a lot of rock and hard place situations for me. On one side, feeling like deflated, let down, angry, sad. And on the other side, feeling like people around me sort of doubting the effort I was making and maybe not being empathetic or sympathetic enough. Do you blame the NHS? Yes, in terms of I blame decision makers in the NHS. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to go and shout at therapists and say, oh, you're shit, unless someone's been proven to be a shit therapist. But I don't think it's the fault necessarily of the people that everyone will deal with, the caregivers. I think the fault, other than the negligent person who didn't tell me how to get my pills. But that's like an individual. Generally, I think these are people actually trying to do a good job. I wanted to just point out how ridiculous it is that if you're registered to your Egham University GP... During the holiday season, that makes it virtually impossible to get any help whatsoever because you can only be registered to one GP. Yeah, and that absolutely doesn't make sense to me because everybody knows that most people who go to university don't go to university in their town. 
Freshers Week, all I heard was sign up for the health centre, sign up for the health centre, it's so important, it's so important. And I did it. And then you end up essentially getting punished for it because once you go home, you can't get help for three months. I remember trying to re-register with my home GP and they told me that they can't transfer the files for three months. I'm thinking, okay, so by the time you get them, I'll be back in Egham. So this is a pointless venture. And those are the things that, you know, I blame because it doesn't make any sense to me. There's a clear logistical flaw. If that was something that was ongoing or people that do have chronic illnesses, what do they do? I don't know. I don't know how they deal with those kind of situations. So... You mentioned that you don't always like the analogy of the mental health issue and the physical health issue. When doesn't that work for you? Most times. Literally, other than the example I just used, never. They're so different. A physical illness in and of itself does not necessarily change your outlook on life and the world. Now, physical illness can bring about mental illness or emotional strain. But the mental strain isn't a symptom of the physical illness. It's in and of itself. The physical illness is doing what it's doing to your physical body. It's not doing what it's doing to your brain. For me, a physical illness in and of itself does not change your outlook on life. It doesn't change your psyche. It doesn't change how you feel in your mind, in your spirit when you wake up. But a mental illness fundamentally does. That's what it is. I mean, you get into sticky situations where talking about environment, obviously environment does affect physical illnesses we know that we understand that so when I was talking about for example some of the layers of being a man and being a black man and all that kind of stuff those are things that I guess are unavoidable for a lot of people basically if you're born marginalized in this society those are things that you can do absolutely nothing about even if you wanted to live the healthiest the best lifestyle all you can do is minimize the impact of those things on your mental health or learn how to manage them whereas you know environmental factors with physical health you could stop smoking you could drink less you could change those environmental factors so i guess for me that's why it it doesn't work i feel like it's a weak analogy that people go for to make mental health easier to understand but to understand something you don't always have to make it easier sometimes you need to make the effort to learn a bit more and actually work harder to understand it it makes people who don't suffer from mental illness divorce themselves totally from a mental health conversation and on a sort of societal level it turns us into them and us's feel free to completely shut me down on my next question if it's too personal and too invasive but one of the really harrowing statistics with men and mental health is the high rates of suicide and I read your contribution to one of these Guardian articles and I I saw that you had actually had some sort of experience with suicide and I just wondered if maybe you could elaborate or if you were willing or up for talking about that part of your life. Yeah no these are things that I do openly speak about because helps me to some extent to normalize it all so with me and suicide i guess my first attempt was when i was 19 and from then there have been a number of attempts that ranged in like levels of some were were more thought out than others some were literally days in planning some were like i felt angry or sad or some kind of unwanted emotion got drunk and thought yeah we're gonna end it today i think my last one was october 2014 and that was it wasn't premeditated, but the levels that I went to for non-premeditated action, essentially I got to Eastbourne or something. There's like cliffs somewhere in the UK and I got there, my phone died and I, obviously I got to the edge of the cliff and I was like, oh, I can't do it. Got back home and discovered that there was this police search for me and everything was going wild. And I think at that point I thought, okay, whoa. So 
that was definitely a turning point for me. But yeah, there have been close calls. There was one incident where, truthfully speaking, let's say I am right now a broken rope away from death. And again, after that, I didn't stop. When I look back on them, that's one thing I guess I haven't really figured out what my view or relationship with it is. To an extent, I can talk about the details of them in a very matter-of-fact way, but I know that I, I don't really make the necessary emotional connection with those events yet. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to look back at, you know, number of times you've actually tried to take your life. It's difficult to look back and think, oh, if it wasn't for, you know, dodgy equipment, I wouldn't be living. You've had two years where you haven't self-harmed. Mm. What kinds of things do you do to do self-care? So on a very, very, very basic level, it is maintaining the body and understanding the relationship between the body and the mind. So one of the things I learned in um, therapy is that for me, if I'm not eating enough, hydrating enough, my mood will be altered. You know what being hangry is, right? Being hungry, angry, right? <laughs> yeah, I am um, the... Well hangriest person you have ever met and for me it was always a thing where like people would be around me so if we're out a lot of my family members always knew that oh if Chama gets hungry he gets really grumpy a lot of it was with my therapist analyzing some of the triggers to sort of my mood or my behavior and taking it down to that real basic level to say before you self-harmed or before you had an angry outburst let's go back to what happened throughout the day there was patterns of being sleep deprived or not sleeping at the right times levels of low hydration poor nutrition so self-care is one of those things that people expect it to be these extravagant things but for me it starts on that most basic level less basic stuff i guess is i always indulge in my passions and that's one thing i always advise people to do i think everybody knows in their quiet moments what makes them happy it sounds corny it's a corny thing i'm going to say in this podcast but connect with their sort of inner child i don't know what those things are for me and i treasure them and hold them daily what are they so wrestling is a huge oh my god i love i was listening to a wrestling podcast when i was coming <laughs> here the football team i support sport arsenal i explain this to a lot of people for me my relationship with football particularly going to matches rather than watching them on tv i always say that for me the game starts when i leave my house and it finishes when i get back and what I love about it is if I put my scarf on or my shirt on or whatever and as soon as I leave my house and people know there's a match on and they see where I'm going they understand my emotions from that point if I go to go into a game and I'm nervous but people won't look at me and think oh why is that guy you know looking tense and nervous they get it if I'm coming back from a game and we lost and I look upset and I look angry people don't know oh, why is that black dude in the back of the bus angry they get it and when you're in the, in the, that stadium itself it's pure emotion for me there isn't anything other than just feeling it those are two for me watching cartoons still those are probably my three go-to things so the the football scarf is almost like a license for emotion that you share with the crowd a hundred percent and that's literally a hundred percent that's what it is because i've been to games come back beaming smiling and i've been to games come back fuming like absolutely fuming and there is no other circumstance I can think of as a black man where I can travel literally the length of London, half the length of London, come back home with like this just scowl on my face and people are just like, yeah. 
I get it. For me, it's not about like, oh, I watched the game and we won, so I'm happy. It's literally the fact that I can just freely express emotion. And in this world that wants men to emote, but isn't really comfortable with men emoting, it's one arena, I guess, where men can emote and people are comfortable with it. So what advice do you have for people, young boys, young black boys maybe, who are experiencing the same things that you've gone through? The first one is and this is out says to all men and boys that the markers of what it means to be a man to you are not set in stone if you think about traditionally masculine behaviors right i'll talk about myself me specifically as a british zambian in britain two men holding hands walking down the street you assume that there's two men in a relationship whereas men just hold hands in zambia that's just the thing we're talking about football, this ultra-masculine arena, right? When one player gets subbed on and subbed off in Spain, you often see them kiss on the cheek rather than just, like, shake hands or, like, bump fists because we're men. But that's not seen as an effeminate thing. So the point I'm trying to make is whatever you consider to be a man, it's not because of biology. It's not because that's how men are supposed to be. This is one really funny one that I, I would probably tell particularly black boys is there is a segment of the consciously, quote-unquote, consciously black community that say that one of the ways that the world is trying to destroy the black man is to effeminize him and one of the things they point to is western men sort of wearing skirts or wearing like long line t-shirts that kind of look like skirts and somebody posted a thread of african men in traditional attire that wasn't trousers because trousers are not a, a traditional african attire so that's a great example to say oh, you're being effeminate as, you know, black men because you're not wearing trousers. Like, these are how black men all would have been had it not been for slavery and colonisation. So that, to me, is a strong example to really explain that these standards are fake. Second thing I'd say is understand the ways this Western world is trying to harm you. Understand the ways in which you'll be viewed as an aggressor, as a predator, as unemployable, as a sexual tool, all all the ways in which the world will view you and understand that those are strains on your mental health and understand that you have to deal with them but how you deal with them is your choice so what are you working on what can people how can people find you what things do you want oh, to plug gosh i guess follow me on twitter what's your handle at chama c-h-a-m-a underscore k-a-y i take regular twitter breaks because that is actually an act of self-care to be honest but when i'm on there i'm always talking about wrestling and football but mental health is there as well and connect with me as well if you want to talk to me genuinely about mental health one-on-one i'm very my dms are open so or if you want to book me for a workshop you can also do that <laughs> that was chama he told us what it's like to balance the ideals of being a modern British man while still upholding strong African values and dealing with mental illness. Joining us from the States is Carl. So my name is Carl Charles. I'm a trans man. I use he, him pronouns. I identify as gay and I'm also able-bodied and white and I'm also an attorney. (laughs) It might seem a little bit odd that we've invited you on to the podcast to talk about your experiences of conversion therapy when it's an episode about mental health because being lesbian, gay or bisexual is not a mental health issue but for a long time it was considered as such and then obviously right. today being trans is considered a mental health issue according to the World Health Organization. What's it like to be treated for something like that? I think that part of the stigma about being trans right now comes from is an erroneous mental health classification. So for years in the dsm 4 which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of mental health disorders and pathologies, being trans, right, which for a long time they called transsexualism, 
Before that, it was transvestitism. Both terms are pretty outdated and seen by the trans community as pejoratives now. But um, those diagnoses really stigmatized being trans as being a mental health disorder, right? Just yesterday, some person tweeted at me about being mentally ill, right, and needing to seek treatment. And as a matter of fact, by virtue of being trans, I've sought a lot of treatment, as a matter of fact, none of which was to cure me or fix me or make me be something I'm not, right? It was actually to help me deal with a society that, in in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of trans people, is sort of disordered, right? The mistreatment that trans folks experience is because of a disordered society, not because we ourselves are in fact disordered. Yeah. Are you able to give us a quick overview of what conversion therapy is if people listening aren't familiar with that? Yeah, sure. So here in the States, the American Medical Association and many other professional organizations have have spoken out against this as actually being a legitimate therapy. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to call it counseling um, because in the United States, you can be a counselor and not be licensed. Speaking, you know, anecdotally about my experience, I was treated by someone who is not a licensed medical health professional, right? And what they attempted to do with me was conversion therapy. So it's sort of this, I would say, approach where the primary idea is that someone who is LGB or T can be talk therapied out of their intrinsic either sexual orientation or gender identity. It's sort of laughable to think like, uh, clearly we can't talk someone out of their sexual orientation. That's an intrinsic part of who they are. But I think reasonable people are still sort of confused about trans folks and think that, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is something that could be cured with with this type of, you know, counseling or therapy. Um, And it's just not true. So how did you find yourself in counseling then? Yeah, I mean, let's call it conversion therapy because I just want to make the distinctions when I'm talking about it that it's not a legitimized therapy, right? right. Okay, um, fair but, enough. But, but let's call it that for the purposes of our discussion. I ended up in conversion therapy by virtue of, you know, being a gender nonconforming queer young person, right? And I was raised in a very conservative military family. You know, I was also really involved with athletics, and so they sent me to a public school for a couple of years, primarily to play basketball. I met two, I think, of the first sort of openly gay or lesbian uh, women that I had ever met. You know, I was assigned female at birth and presenting sort of in a very masculine way. You know, I was still identified by people as female, and so these women were, to me, I mean, I looked up to them a great deal. They were like living their lives as functional people in relationships with women. And to me, it was sort of mind boggling, you know, because the exposure I had had to LGBT people at that time was very limited and came from my parents or came from my church, even though back in my head, I I already knew I had a queer identity. I had not shared it with anyone and I had not seen any positive role models. So it was really foundational for me to see these two women being accomplished like productive parts of society. As a result, I think a lot of my anxiety about who I was diminished for the first couple of years of high school. And not surprisingly, I developed feelings for a female friend of mine. She was a really great influence on me. She encouraged me to 
keep up with my studies, to play hard at basketball, which was very important to me. You know, I was trying to get a college scholarship. She played on the soccer team and, you know, she was very involved with athletics also. We got on really well. You know, neither one of us, even to this day, and and we're in contact now, neither one of us really characterized what we experienced as like a, a relationship, a gay relationship. But we cared very much for each other. She always had boyfriends. You know, I was dating boys I think both of us sort of knew the connection we had was significant, but didn't really want to put those words on it. So anyway, I was also starting to question a lot of what my parents and my church community had been telling me about the world. I started to sort of gain a little bit of confidence about speaking with my parents about who I was and what I believed. And in an effort to be honest, which was something that my dad had really taught us was really important, I tried to sit down with my parents and explain to them Uh, how much I cared about my friend. Thinking back on it now, I can see that basically what I told them was that I was in love with her. But to to my 16-year-old brain, I was like, I just really care about this person. She means a lot to me. My parents had decided that we shouldn't be friends, that she was a bad influence on me, despite the fact that she really looking out for me in a lot of ways. And, and I tried to explain to my parents and all they heard was, we might have a queer kid. Oh my God, what are we going to do? So that's when I started going to therapy in the basement of this church. My parents did a couple of things. First of all, they made me meet with an attorney who you know, sort of threatened me with the law and said that my parents were going to file a restraining order against this person and they were going to have her arrested, which now that I'm a lawyer, I know that's all bogus. But it was very scary as a 16-year-old, and that coupled with the conversion therapy was enough for me to stop talking to my friends for a long time. My parents switched me back to the private Christian school that I was at, and I was going to therapy with this guy whose name I can't even remember uh, once a week. It was like Tuesday or Wednesday night, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. My, my dad usually would drive me to the church, and, and it was pretty creepy. You know, the church was dark at that time, and there was just this light on in the basement, and, you know, he would watch me walk down the steps, and I would go into this guy's office. So it was very bright, despite the fact that the entire rest of the church was dark, because um, nobody was there. So I would sit with this guy who was, I would say, 50s, 60s, gray hair, sort of older white guy who had photos up of his family. It was all very creepy to me in general. I think it's hard to separate my feelings of anxiety from what happened there. And essentially what happened was that every week for the better part of a year, I had an old white dude sort of yelling and praying and being pretty weird about getting me to admit that my friend had sexually assaulted me. Um, He was convinced that she was a lesbian and had touched me or done things to me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And that I just needed to pray about it and report her to the police. And I also wasn't actually myself gay. Um, It was a pretty troubling experience, to be honest. It took me a long time before I could really even think or talk about it because I, I think I had blocked a lot of it out. Well, first of all, thank you so much for being so open and honest with us about that. We really appreciate it. Um, What was the most, I guess, troubling or traumatic thing about it? Was it the actual therapy or was it your family putting you through that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think long term, I would say the breaking of trust that I experienced at that time with my parents was really severe and I think has impacted me into adulthood. And I'm not special in that. I think we all have our frustrations. But I think for me as a young queer person, I felt so rejected and so invisible and as though I wasn't, you know, a person. Like I had a really great relationship with my parents up until that time and I was really hurt. And I think it's taken me a long time to work through that hurt and disappointment um, about my parents not trusting me about who I was. And I think more importantly, feeling like their love and care for me was now jeopardized by virtue of who I was. I think we all hope that our families, even our friends, you know, our partners will love and accept us for who we truly are. And I felt as though I had to sacrifice who I was to be what my parents wanted me to be or to be a good child. And so I think while the therapy in and of itself was certainly very harmful, at a point I stopped going, right? And also I was able to sort of block out and forget about that I wasn't able to forget about or block out my parents you know what I mean like I had to continue to see them I had to some degree follow their rules and try to get along with them and and try to survive for a good five to seven years after that while I was still being supported by them and figuring out if I could live on my own and I think that was was what impacted me more long term could we ask what your relationship is like with your parents now Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So I actually have a pretty good relationship with my mom now. And I credit that to the fact that she divorced my dad when I was 22. I think when I was 15 and 16, when this started to happen, my mom, to the degree that I think she could, expressed her disagreement with the way that my dad was reacting to this. You know, I think my mom felt conflicted. You know, she wanted what was best for me, but, you know, my dad really was authoritarian in our house. He was definitely verbally abusive to her and to us at times. And so I I think my mom fought her own battles, you know, which she shielded us from a lot. And I think when she finally split from him, she and I were able to work on a more authentic relationship. You know, my mom is still a conservative Christian, but she has a more open view of the world and of what that means. I don't view her face as 
being an impediment to our relationship or to my identities. When I came out as trans when I was 26, I think that was hard for her. I, I remember what, a question she asked. She was like, but you're a feminist. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mom, that's not that's not going to change <laughs> just because of my gender identity. But she's worked really hard, as have I, right, to build our relationship back up. And I think it was really aided by her divorcing my dad. My dad and I tried to have a relationship, but we couldn't really talk about anything that mattered. And then when I came out as trans, that was really the final straw. I wrote all my family a, a letter. My letter to my dad was very much like, listen, you don't have to like this. I'm not seeking your approval. I'm telling you who I am and you know what my life is going to be like. You know, I would like to have a relationship with you, but if you can't respect who I am, I'm fine with not having a relationship with you. So I didn't really hear from him for about six months. And then I got a letter that was pretty hurtful and said a lot of things about me being an abomination and being mentally ill and about not going to the right kind of therapy. And if I had a Christian therapist, this would have never happened. And I, I remember he compared gender identity to, to wanting to be able to dunk a basketball and to wanting to be able to have a photographic memory. He said, there are just some things we can't be. You know, he showed up uninvited to my law school graduation. He introduced himself to my boyfriend and called me Carl. He said, I'm Carl's dad. But, you know, he and I didn't really speak. You know, I shared with him that I had gotten this really prestigious legal fellowship to work for the American Civil Liberties Union in New York City. And, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but this fellowship, it's one of the most prestigious public interest fellowships in the United States. You toot and your I, horn. <laughs> I was proud of myself. I had gotten through law school without help from my parents, you know, taking out loans. And I shared this with him. And um, I remember his response was, well, that sounds like a nice experience. I bet you'll learn a lot. That was it. You know, I've talked about this with my therapist since then. And I said, that was so frustrating. It was so hurtful because that was my attempt again at sort of reaching out, you know, credit to my partner at the time. He was like, look, your dad drove two and a half hours to come to your law school graduation. He introduced himself to me and he called you Carl. Maybe you should try. And I was like, OK, you know what? I will try. And that's what happened. To be honest, I don't really know that he's the kind of person generally that I want a relationship with, even if he were to sort of you know, try to repair things and, and initiate a relationship. I'm not sure what I would get out of it at this point. Like, I think we are very, very different people. And I'm grateful to him, actually, for showing me the kind of man and person that I don't want to be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think my experience, sadly, is, is not unique. You know, I think there are a lot of LGB and especially trans people who have families who, who cut them off. I feel really grateful and fortunate, honestly, to have a, a mom and my mom's mom, my grandmother, who are really pretty supportive, my grandmother even more so. I'm, I feel really grateful to have them in my life, and I recognize that that's not something that a lot of trans people have. I feel grateful for, for the good relationships they do have. What's it like to go through therapy after having gone through conversion therapy? It's pretty remarkable and incredible. So within the span of about six months, my grandmother died, we were close, my parents got divorced, and then I graduated from college. So I Googled and I found this therapist in Denver, Colorado, who was the last remaining member of this feminist counseling collective. And my therapist, I found her on the LGBT Center of Colorado's website. And I just called her up and was like, hey, I think I might need to go to therapy. And she was like, yeah, let's make it work. I started going to her and the difference was really stark, right? Whereas with conversion therapy, where my identity wasn't seen or celebrated or asked about or safe in therapy with Anne and, and with my now therapist here in New York City, I feel really visible. I feel really safe. I feel like issues that are unique to me as a trans man, I'm able to talk about them in a way that I think 
I'm not able to, even with friends. And that for me has been really transformative. It's helped me process through a, a lot of the shame and stigma that I think I experienced as a young person. It's helped think about my place in the world and how I can support other people. I honestly recommend therapy for everyone. I think it's very helpful to have folks that we can talk with who can provide us a different perspective who aren't our friends. I think there's something to be said for unburdening our friends of the significant emotional labor that we sometimes expect of them, especially like our femme-identified friends. I know that's something that I did for a long time and that I think other people do without thinking about it. Was it not terrifying? Were you not afraid that your experience would just be repeated? Yeah, I think that's why I was so particular about, you know, looking for a therapist who was LGBT themselves, you know, and not just LGBT, but experienced with gender issues, you know, I think I lucked out. I think a lot of people, especially people who have had bad therapy experiences, when they try to have another experience, a positive one, they don't always find someone the first time out. You know, I think it did take some time for me to build trust with her. And we went through some issues where she said, you know, like, Carl, if I'm going to be helpful to you, you have to like share with me what's going on. You know, I think I had done a lot of self-preservation for much of my life in order to survive my relationship with my parents. My dad had always said honesty is important. And then when I was honest, I was shunned. So I learned, unfortunately, that being honest is actually not always the best thing. And so I, I feel like I had to really unlearn that connected, I think, to my experience in conversion therapy. I didn't have to lie to the therapist, if we can call him that. I didn't have to lie to him. I was never sexually assaulted by my friend. Um, But I did have to lie about how much I cared about her, right? I did have to protect her. I had to try to protect myself. What was your journey to be able to fully accept yourself and acknowledge yourself despite everything that you were being told and taught at conversion therapy? That's a good question. Despite everything that was happening with my parents, I still found my church community to be important to me. I had grown up in a Baptist church. I had friendships. I had youth ministers who I really looked up to. And so I tried during my first semester of college to stay connected to that community. And I I found a church up in my college town to go to, and I was going to a Bible study. And, you know, I was reading my Bible every day. You know, and then I fell in love with one of my basketball teammates. There was a moment I remember over Christmas break where I was reading my Bible and I sort of looked at it and I was like, you know what? If it's me or Christianity, like if I have to pick, if I have to choose. And at that time, I felt I did have to. Right. That's the thing I want to make clear. I don't feel that way. There are lots of LGBT Christians and I I don't think those like experience or identities are mutually exclusive. But at that time, I really did. Because I had been told that been told like you can't be gay and be a Christian you can't be a trans person and be a Christian we know that's not true but but at the time I I saw it very narrowly and so I remember sort of having this moment where I was like if I have to choose between like loving this person and feeling loved and and this religion that I'm not sure accepts me I'm gonna pick love like I, I will pick that every single time I think that was a really significant moment for me of coming to terms with who I was, right? Not certainly the full picture of who I was at that time, but a really important first step. And like I said, I've since realized that Christianity and the things that Jesus in particular did and believe and like preached actually are super inclusive of LGBT people. And that religion is not exclusive of LGBT folks, but I think it's, you know, I think a lot of people think that it is. And I certainly did at that time. So your your faith helped you figure out who you were? I think so. 
so. Yeah, that's a really good way to say that. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I think so. So what's your relationship with your faith now? I think I believe in a lot of the universal principles about loving people. I would say my faith is about loving and caring for people. If we're talking about loving and caring about poor people, about trans people, about, you know, women, both cis and trans, um, if we're talking about anti-racist work, those are the things that I think are at the core of my faith and how I understand my relationship to spirituality and, and the world. I wanted to know if there was at any point when you were going through conversion therapy, if you ever took on anything that this person was telling you, or did you always know that it was just total rubbish? I think I definitely did take some of that on. You know, I think I definitely internalized a lot of the negativity that this conversion therapist was was giving to me. I, I think I certainly thought, like, the overwhelming ideas about, like, you are a criminal and this person is a criminal and something criminal happened like that, I was like, no, that's not actually true. But I think I think it wore me down a lot. You know, basically, I ended up telling this, this friend of mine that we couldn't be friends, that I couldn't speak to her. Um, and I know that hurt her a lot. And it hurt me a lot, you know, but I... I basically was like, okay, in order to survive, I have to live in my parents' house. I have to do what they say, at least for a few more years. And so in the interest of doing that, I cut off ties with this person, and that was really hard. Hmm. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be in conversion therapy right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think I would say, you know, to young people and adults going through that really traumatic experience that... Um, you were born perfect. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Despite what someone is telling you, despite whatever religion they are misrepresenting to say that there is something wrong with you, you are absolutely 100% perfect. And there is a big wide world of people who love you and care for you and are here to support you. And I'm a part of that. Just know there are so many people out there who love and accept you. And that person, and maybe your parents or your friends or whoever put you in that situation, does not represent the entire world. You know, there are a lot of us out here who've been through that. And, you know, we're here to tell you you can get through it and that you are okay. Excellent. So has this had an impact on the work that you do today? Absolutely. I tried to focus my legal work on supporting youth. Um, I wanted to be a part of a systemic effort to address the conditions that LGBT youth exist in. I geared some of my legal work in my first couple of years to focus on trans youth who are um, impacted by the criminal justice system in some way. So, you know, youth who are homeless, who are in out-of-home care, which is like foster care, or who are in the criminal justice system, right, in juvenile justice facilities. Because of what we know about the way that mass incarceration works in the United States, a lot of those youth are youth of color. My own experience, I recognize, was terrible. But I think that there are many youth who have even more difficult experiences by virtue of the fact that they are youth of color, right? Because they are black or Latino youth. Um, if they have unaccepting families and end up on the street, they're more likely to be profiled, right? For me, when I was running away to like go spend the night at my friend's house, no one called the cops. And when they did call the cops, the cops showed up and did not arrest me, right? So I think that's by virtue of my whiteness. I think there were some things intrinsic to my experience that made it so that I wasn't 
profiled in the way that a lot of youth of color are. So I, I really wanted to work to support those youth in particular. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for trusting us with your story and the things that you're working on. Is there anything you want to plug at all? Thank you. Um, it, was a, it was a real pleasure to speak with you, Elena, and said thank you very much for reaching out. I hope that my experience can be helpful for people who might be going through it or for people who think that this is a good method to treat LGBT people. Um, I'm here to say it's not, as are many other people. Um, I think the best way to get in touch is on Twitter. Uh, my hashtag is oh underscore R-A-R-L because O Carl was taken and Carl Charles was also taken. So I like it. <laughs> oh, excellent. Thank you so much, Carl. I honestly like cannot say how honored I feel that you've come on our podcast. That was Carl. In light of increased media coverage portraying trans as a mental health issue, we can't thank Carl enough for trusting us and sharing his story. If you want to know more about the fight against conversion therapy, make sure to check out the Born Perfect campaign, which Carl is a big supporter of. Up next is Nicole. I am Nicole. I'm 23 years old. I am a cis, uh, able-bodied white woman. (laughs) Nicole, thank you so much for coming on our episode on mental health this month. So if you could maybe tell us a little bit, what are your experiences with mental health? So my experiences with mental health start from when I was very young up until now. I've had loads of different diagnoses in that time as well. And finally, I think seven years in, we finally got what they think I have. My current diagnosis is borderline personality disorder and part of that is anxiety and depression. So my experience started from when I was about 14. I started to experience panic attacks and they got so bad that when I would go into school, I'd go into a classroom and I'd immediately hyperventilate and have to leave. So it got to a point where I was afraid to leave my house and then it got better for a little while when I went into college and then in my first year in college it started to really go downhill at the end and I started self-harming I started having panic attacks again I was really really depressed my moods were so varied they'd go from one moment I'd be okay to the next moment I would be in tears and having to go home and so obviously my attendance was shattered in my second year I ended up dropping out completely because I wasn't in a place where I could be learning so could you define what borderline personality disorder is it is almost like a chronic fear of being alone that's what it's ultimately defined by but it's a really varied thing so for some people they can have really big mood swings where they can lash out or they can go very isolated in themselves people with borderline personality disorder are much more likely to try and commit suicide unfortunately they're much more likely to suffer from drug addiction alcoholism also we're more likely to struggle with friends and family part of the big problem with borderline personality disorder is you really struggle to form relationships because i'm not speaking on behalf of everyone but your brain doesn't quite process the same way as everyone else does what might seem like a silly comment or a joke to someone else can be the difference between me having a good day or me wanting to kill myself. Does it feel reassuring to have a diagnosis? Is that reassuring or is that more frustrating? For me, having a diagnosis really, really helps because I can put a name to how I feel. For years, I didn't understand why things affected me so badly and now I know and I can kind of explain it to other people around me as well. So how does it affect your relationships or friendships? For me, I get really badly paranoid, so I constantly need reassurance from my friends that they still like me for no reason at all. 
It could be that somebody is a bit quiet one day and I will assume that it's about me. Another problem is is that people with borderline personality disorder, we tend to not have a strong sense of self. It's almost like an absence of a personality, so I'm never quite the same with every person that I speak to. The best way to describe it for me is as if a pot had been smashed and you'd put the pot back together but you're not quite put together correctly and there's a bit missing. For me, it has affected relationships and friendships. I have very few friends because I've pushed so many people away for the the most minor things and then the flip side of that is I've let people take advantage of me to a degree because of it as well. What's it like for people who may not be good friends or family members so people who might not you might not tell your diagnosis to but people that you might work with or you study with? A lot of people tell me when I do finally open up to them that they have no idea and I think that's because I've had the struggle for such a long time now that I'm very good at concealing that I have these problems but a lot of the time when I meet someone for the very first time inside I'm dying I'm so worried and anxious it's like I'm a like a bottle of coke that's shaken up and I'm about to pop at any moment so have you ever been hospitalized because of this yes I've been hospitalized twice I've been in actual hospital eight times it's not necessarily just because of borderline personality disorder. The reasons I was in hospital were multiple suicide attempts, which led to my eventual having to go to a facility. But I've been hospitalised in a facility twice. Once before I was 18 and once after I was 18. And before I was 18, they couldn't legally diagnose me as borderline. So in my notes, it says, has unstable personality traits, which is their way of saying, you're borderline, but we can't legally call you that yet. Why can't they call you that until you're 18? Because your personality isn't fully developed, apparently, which... I don't think is true. I mean, I've been exactly the same way from when this all started to now. I just manage it better now. And the problem with borderline as well is it's so stigmatised even in the mental health industry. Therapists have turned away friends of mine because they refuse to treat people with borderline. Why? People with borderline are perceived to be manipulative. We're perceived as sort of not telling the truth a lot of the time, so a lot of therapists don't know how to handle that and will turn patients away. And I'm talking about private therapists as well. I've been turned away because I've said the right things and therefore have, have I've been not considered a high enough suicide risk which then led to a suicide attempt because I wasn't getting the help and a lot of the time we also get being misdiagnosed as bipolar so originally I was diagnosed as bipolar and then went back to borderline and then went back to bipolar and then finally settled on borderline again because of the mood swings but that's the only thing we have in common is the mood swings that's it. What were the differences between being hospitalized before being 18 and then later? The one, I was in two facilities, so I was in one in London and then one close to where I lived. The reason why I was in one in London is because adolescent mental health facilities don't really exist, or they do exist, but then there's not as many. They also really, really do not like hospitalising anyone under 18. They try and get you out as soon as they pop you in, almost. I was only there for a couple of days because they just did not want to have me there, and I said, I want to go home and I'm fine, I'll never do it again, which was a lie. <laughs> I also found at the adolescent one that there wasn't really anyone around. What they're trying to do now is they're trying to create one for people who are 18 to sort of 20 because really putting me as a 17 year old which is when I was hospitalized in with someone who's 13 isn't right and I think that can leave room for things to go horrifically wrong when you put someone who is basically an adult in with a child because the side switch is, is as an adult as you go in at 18 you were 45-year-olds, 60-year-olds, people who have been there their entire life. There was only me and one other girl in the facility that I was in who were 18. Everyone else had been... They were on almost like a rolling section, so they'd be released for like a day, and then they'd be resectioned. And so there was one woman who had had her first breakdown when she was 17. 
she's now 55 and she's been in mental health care that whole time. So you mentioned that you had been sectioned. How does one become sectioned? So for me, it was a bit of a strange process. It doesn't work this way for everybody. So I was in hospital on my seventh suicide attempt and it was my most serious attempt. And a psychiatrist came in to see me at the hospital that I was in and he sat me down and he said, you can either go into this facility voluntarily or I will ask for you to be sectioned. So I said, I'll go in voluntarily. So that night I was transferred over and about two days later I said, can I leave? And that's when they sectioned me. So what's the difference between going in voluntarily and being sectioned? So in theory, if you go into a facility voluntarily, you're voluntarily walking in and saying, I am not well, I need to be in a facility, help. A section is when you are held against your will, and often what can happen with voluntary patients is they can then section them if they don't feel that you're safe to leave, which is what happened to me. Basically, my brain kicked in and went, if I say I'm well and ask if I can leave, they'll let me go, because it worked last time, except as an adult, things change a little bit, and they they put me on a basically what was a 48-hour section, which is where they observe you and make the decision, and then they decided that I wasn't well enough to go home, which was the correct decision at the time. Can you describe what it's like to be sectioned in the UK today? Is What's a mental health facility like? It really varies. I had spoken to some people who were in the same facility as me who had been transferred over from other places and they said that the one that we were in was fantastic compared to where they'd been but the one I was in was still wasn't great. Your life is just, you just sort of exist from day to day. There's no structure and there's no freedom your security can vary in these places now i can't speak for all facilities but we had i think you could be a one two three or a four now a one is where you're watched constantly even your shower times are monitored because if you spend too long in the shower what are you doing in there are you trying to kill yourself there's a two which is where you've got a little bit more freedom you're not as closely monitored but you still can't leave I think you can go so long as you've got someone with you so you can go out on day trips so long as you've got someone with you and then a four is pretty much you can come and go as you please so I went in as a high security uh, where I was very very closely watched wasn't allowed my phone charger for example because that could be used as a noose I wasn't allowed like a razor if I wanted to shave my legs or anything like that because obviously that can be used I was banned from plastic spoons because I had been breaking them in half and using them to pick out stitches in my arm which is horrific I realise we didn't really have structure to our day we had breakfast, lunch and dinner but apart from that you just sort of do what you want within reason So you mentioned that having borderline personality disorder can mean that having relationships with friends or even with family members can be really tough. What were those relationships like after having been sectioned? Because I imagine there's quite a big taboo around it. Yeah, so a lot of people in my college at the time knew that I had gone into hospital and I was sort of known as the girl with mental health problems. I don't know if you remember a thing called Ask FM. Yeah, Yeah. that was awful, that website. I got absolutely destroyed on it by people that I knew going on anonymously being like if you were going to kill yourself why don't you just do it already I can't believe you walk around with like cuts visible on your arms someone messaged my boyfriend at the time and said why are you with her you must be into cuts and blood because of my self-harm so there was a big stigma and actually if I could go back I would have not gone back to the same college even teachers treated me differently teachers acted like I was making it up and I was not attending lessons of my own accord and it wasn't until there was a big meeting where they were considering do we kick her out or not that they realised actually the problem was real. When I had my interview to do a third year 
the vice principal of my college turned around to me and he said, if you've tried to kill yourself seven times, you mustn't be very good at it. <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And I understand why people won't talk to you when you are in that sort of frame of mind because people have got to look after themselves as well. It is very hard dealing with someone who has mental health problems and sometimes people do need to say I can't deal with you and I need to walk away but that's also very hard to hear that from people. Again without being too intrusive or invasive are you comfortable describing what led to seven suicide attempts? Yes of course yeah a lot of it's a blur to me one day I think someone just made a careless comment to me and I went and took an overdose. Uh, One night I had left my house at a very silly time in the morning with no shoes on and I had gone for a very long walk ended up at my boyfriend at the time's house my mum came to pick me up in the morning she took me into hospital into A&E and said I'm worried about my daughter like she left the house in the early hours of the morning didn't tell anyone where she was going barely remembers where she went help they said just keep a close eye on her she'll be fine and I took that as a well no one cares about me so then I made another attempt that same day for me my depression was really really bad during that time these attempts were all very close together they were all within the same year I felt hopeless and I felt like no one was listening to me and I felt like everyone just thought I was a joke and it was just too much I can't even describe how low you feel when you get to that point the way I describe depression to me is it's like walking down a very dark tunnel and you see light and you never hit that light you never get there you can keep walking for miles and miles but you'll never get there and that's how I felt constantly are you receiving treatment yes yes so what are you treated for are you treated for borderline personality disorder or are you treated for your symptoms like an eating disorder or depression or I'm treated for borderline personality disorder at this point I'm on a medication that is a mood stabilizer I personally walked away from therapy because for me therapy doesn't help I'm not saying to people don't do it I'm absolutely if you think therapy works for you go and have therapy but for me talking about my issues has made it worse is that because it's potentially a little bit triggering I think so I think when it sort of started opening up once one thing had sort of been broached everything started and it it just all became too much very very quickly but I'm on a mood stabilizing antidepressant that it has a sedative in it that works very very well for me but I have other friends who have borderline personality disorder who can't take that medication because it wipes them out so it's very tricky to treat how long did it take you to get treatment so I have been in and out of various treatments since 15 16 I've been on medication since I was 16 17 I started on Prozac then moved on to sertraline which is what I was on for the longest time which is just part of that main group of antidepressants that if you are on an antidepressant you'll be on one of the sort of main three which is I want to say is fluoxetine, citalopram and sertraline. I've been on all three of them. Sertraline was the thing that worked best for me. I'm now on a different group which I feel like now I'm on it and I've been on it for about three months so it's quite a recent change. I wish I'd been on it the entire time. I feel so stable on it but it's taken what I'm 23 now. It's taken since I was before I was even in my 20s to get to a point where a medication is working. So the majority of your adult life really. Yeah mental health is such a tricky thing because it's so hard to treat because it's so different from person to person. What works for me is not going to work for someone else. 
Unfortunately, medications, in my experience, you've just got to keep trying them until you find the one that works. And if that means you feel sick or you gain weight or you feel anxious while you're on those, unfortunately, it's part of a horrible process, but you've kind of got to go through it. And I would say to anyone else who is going through medication struggles, the moment you feel like it's not working, go back to your doctor and say, this isn't working, try something else. And they'll keep, and they will keep trying until they find the right thing. We've spoken about your relationships and I understand that sometimes if you're going for jobs do you ever need to like declare that you had mental health issues or you've been hospitalized I don't disclose that I've been hospitalized from a legal standpoint you don't have to disclose anything to your employer if you don't want to if you're not comfortable I'm lucky that I I work for a really nice company where I am able to disclose that I don't get judged and they've been very supportive at the end of last year I had an incident that re-triggered everything and I had to be signed off for two weeks from work whilst the medication change happened and my work were very 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 good about that there are other companies that aren't good about those sort of things I do tend to say at jobs this is a problem it is ongoing I don't necessarily think it will impact my work now but I can't be certain I would say that's a personal choice that everyone needs to make for themselves if you don't feel safe and you don't feel that your work would be supportive don't so for companies to be supportive of people with mental health issues it's best to give them space be accommodating yeah my company have made sure that I'm not taking on additional duties if I can't handle them. They've made sure that I can speak up when things are getting bad again. If I need to go home, I can say I can't work today, I need to go home. I would say companies just need to be compassionate and know that sometimes you need to take time out. You said that people who knew you from back when you were a teenager at college say that you're totally different now. So the workplace being supportive and the medication sounds like it has a role in that. What else is different? I recognise the symptoms. I can tell when I'm slipping. I also have a group of core friends who all know my issues and that's just what helps is having friends who accept that. I think a way of easing up your situation is reach out. Don't sit there and struggle alone. For the longest time, I just let it all carry on and buried my head in the sand. And you can't do that because eventually it is going to leak out. Go to your doctor. They are there to help you. And if they turn you away, go back and go back again and keep pressing because they can't ignore you forever. The mental health system isn't great in this country. It's a need-by-need basis system. And unfortunately, they will turn you away if you're not a high enough suicide risk, which is awful because for a lot of people, that's the thing that then makes them become a high suicide risk. And do you know what? If people aren't understanding your situation, walk away away from them you don't need them in your life it's interesting how with mental health it seems that you can only really get help as soon as it's life-threatening whereas with physical health you're always told get in there early before it becomes life-threatening you know before it gets really bad but with mental health it's different have a noose around your neck and then we'll help you yeah I would completely agree how many attempts does someone have to make before it isn't an attempt anymore How do you self-care then? Self-care for me is recognising the moments where I'm struggling and reaching out to somebody. That could be reaching out to my mum. It could be reaching out to one of my best friends. I like spending a lot of time in the bath. I go to the bath to relax. That's my place where I am happiest. I am in warm water. I get a bath bomb and I just relax and I turn my brain off for a bit. And for me, self-care is part of appreciating the little things around me. Even if that means at work I've gotten through all my emails, for me, that's part of my self-care 
is going, yay, I managed to do that. Or if I'm having a really bad day and I'm at home, it's, yay, I managed to shower. I managed to eat free meals. It's the littlest things. People think self-care has to be this really big ritual, but it doesn't. It can be just appreciating the little things that you manage to do because if you're someone who's really struggling and you've gotten out of bed at a reasonable time in the morning, then that's something to celebrate because that's an achievement. You've done that. What can the people around you do to support people with mental health issues? It's being mindful of little comments that people make. Things like, so someone's talking to themselves in the office, which a lot of us do. We talk to ourselves while we're, you know, while we're working. And someone will be like, oh, you can be locked up for that. No, that's not a funny comment because some of us have been locked up. <laughs> you know, that, that's our reality. Comments like, oh, I'm just about ready to kill myself. No, try and filter yourself a little bit. Be mindful that someone in the room might have been through something. I worked with a girl who lived very close to the hospital that I had been in. And she was talking about how oh, all the people there are nutters. And in my head, I was sitting there like, I used to be there. Those people that you're referring to as nutters, I'm one of them. So does that make me crazy? And it affects approximately one in four people, right? Yes. So. Yeah. Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug? How can people find you if they have questions or if they just want to kind of chat to you about things? My Twitter is currently private at the moment, but okay. you're more than welcome to request to follow me. It's probably not no is my um, <laughs> Twitter handle. I'm hoping in the next sort of year to try and do a little bit more like mental health work. I'm looking at maybe contacting Mind because they are such a good charity. The resources on their website is amazing. They have a list of medications and what their side effects are and what they are used to treat. I was able to look up my medication and find out what other people's struggles with it have been, which is amazing. And they have every single mental health problem under the sun listed on that website, from people's testimonials about it, like how you go about being diagnosed, to what treatments are available. So I, I'm hoping to do some work with them. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on. That's all right. Thanks for having me. And that was Nicole explaining what it's like to be sectioned in the UK today and how difficult it is to get the help that you need. A huge thanks to all of our guests who came on and shared their stories. As always, we love to hear from you. Like we said earlier, this in no way covers the depth that is mental health. So please get in touch and let us know what you'd like to hear next time. You can tweet us at KickKairiarchy. Find us on Facebook with Kicking the Kairiarchy. Email us at kickingthekairiarchy at gmail.com. Or find us on our website www.kickingthekairiarchy.org. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. You'll get a puppy. Psst, puppy cannot be guaranteed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.